0: Please turn in your Bibles to the epistle of First Peter toward the end of your New Testaments. First Peter will be this morning in chapter 4. I believe that should be around page 1016 in your pew Bible in the row in front of you. We continue this morning in our series in First Peter. We are in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, When one becomes a Christian, there are all kinds of new things that happen. Through the new birth, the Christian comes to experience a new love for the things of God, a new love for worship, a new love for the truth, a new love for spiritual devotion and reading God's Word and in coming to God in prayer. The Christian comes to experience a new love for the people of God who become in truth his or her family. Most sweet of all, the Christian experiences a new walk with Jesus Christ, who leads Him, who supports and upholds Him, who is like a shepherd to Him. The Christian, through the new birth, also comes to experience a new relationship with the world. The world is no longer the Christian's home. By virtue of the new birth, the Christian is introduced into a kind of tension with the world. The world, of course, is hostile to the things of God. And it is hostile to the people of God, and this introduces a great deal of hardship and difficulty into the Christian life. The world becomes, in a certain sense, the arena of conflict for the Christian. As Peter has been writing to these Christians, he's endeavoring to open their eyes to what it means to live as exiles in a world that is not their home even as they sojourn toward heaven, which is their home, where they will enjoy their inheritance, which has been prepared and kept for them by Christ Himself. Now here in 1 Peter 4, Peter calls these Christians, and he tells them that to belong to Christ brings about a new attitude toward sin and toward the activities and behaviors that mark and animate the world. So we'll consider this text under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll consider the Christian's attitude towards sin. Secondly, we'll look at the world's attitude towards sin. And thirdly and finally, God's attitude towards sin. Consider with me in the first place the Christian's attitude toward sin. Verse 1 and 2, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Not unlike the passage we saw last week at the end of 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 4, one is a very challenging passage to interpret. Three questions highlight the difficulty. First of all, what does Peter have in view when he refers to Christ's suffering in the flesh? What does he mean by that? What does he have in mind? A second question, What way of thinking are we to have? What are the thoughts, the way of thinking that's being commended to those of us who are Christians? And thirdly, and most significantly, in illustrating the interpretive difficulties of this passage, what does it mean that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? I wonder what you make of that phrase and how you would understand that phrase at the end of verse one. Let me start with two things that I'm quite sure the passage is not saying. First of all, I don't think the passage is saying that suffering in the Christian life has a sort of purging effect. Uh, that is to say that suffering somehow purges the Christian of sin. Or to say that the more we suffer, the less will sin. And that the suffering in this life somehow brings about a ceasing from sin for the believer. I think that's way off the track. I don't think that's Peter's meaning. A second thing I don't think we're to conclude from this verse I don't think the passage is suggesting that in some way Christ was guilty of sin. So I don't think Peter is saying Christ suffered in the flesh and whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, meaning Christ was sinning, but when He suffered in the flesh, that's when He stopped sinning. I think that should be hopefully obvious to all of us here. Our Savior was sinless. Again, like last week, I'll come clean and say I don't know precisely what Peter's meaning is here, but I want to give you... Uh, in contrast to last week, at least three potential interpretations that seem legitimate to me. And then I want to suggest to you the one which I think is the most probable, though my confidence in my own opinion is pretty low. Uh, first, potential, legitimate interpretation of 1 Peter 4 1. The first interpretation would understand Peter as referring to Christ's suffering at the beginning of the verse, as in his sufferings leading to his death being scourged and spat upon and reviled and having his beard pulled and the crown of thorns uh, crashed down upon his head. Then Peter tells us, we're to have the same mind that was in Christ as he suffered, thus we're to imitate him in our own suffering, ceasing from sin. Christ suffered in the flesh and did not sin. We suffer like him in the flesh, and we too are not to sin. In other words, we're to imitate his example in our suffering. More than that, we're to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking He had while He endured unjust suffering. So whatever His perspectives were, as He laid down His life for us, well, we're to have those same perspectives as we suffer in this life and in this world. And in so doing, we're to be like Him in putting off sin. He suffered and sinned not. We too, as we suffer, should not sin. In other words, the same resolves, the same thoughts, perspectives that Christ had in suffering well we're to have in suffering as well and certainly this is a true enough idea so in 1st Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23 Peter makes this very point for to this you have been called he says namely to suffering because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so it's certainly true that Christ's suffering is a paradigm for us an example to us in how we ought to suffer and of course we should seek to adopt his thoughts and perspectives on suffering as those who follow him. That said, I don't think this is Peter's meaning here in 1 Peter 4.1. A second possible interpretation would be to see the phrase suffer in the flesh, for Christ suffered in the flesh, to see that phrase as essentially synonymous with the death of Jesus. So to say Christ suffered in the flesh means that Christ died. I think that's right. I think that's the way that Peter is using the phrase here in 1 Peter 1. So when Peter says Christ suffered in the flesh, he's not referring to the hours leading up to his death, but to the death itself. So to say Christ suffered in the flesh is essentially the same thing as saying Christ died. If that's how we understand uh, that phrase there, And in the second half of the verse, Peter is saying we're to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, we too suffer in the flesh, that is, we die in Christ, and thereby cease from sin. He suffered in the flesh, meaning He died, and we too are considered, reckoned, to have suffered in the flesh and to have died in Jesus. Therefore, we die with Him. His death was a death for sin. Our death is a death to sin. And again, this is a true enough idea, the idea that we've been united to Christ in His death, that in His death we die, and as He dies for sin, we die to sin. Peter makes this precise point in 1 Peter two twenty-four, where he says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So so we are united to Jesus. We who are believers are said to be united to Christ in His death. He suffered in the flesh. He died for sin. We suffer in the flesh through Him and die to sin. Again, a possible interpretation, uh, not the one that I would prefer. True enough, though, but I don't think it's the correct interpretation. A third possible interpretation, this is where I go in my understanding of 1 Peter 4.1. This interpretation would also understand the phrase suffering in the flesh to essentially be synonymous with dying in the flesh. Attract with me here. It would understand then the second half of the verse to be referring again to Jesus and in some way finishing out the thought about Christ's death. So we read Christ suffered in the flesh, then we're told arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, and that way of thinking is going to come up in verse 2. Then he says, for whoever, literally the one who has suffered in the flesh, and I'm saying that's Christ, has ceased from sin. The idea would then be that Jesus has suffered unto death and has brought sin to an end. The phrase cease from sin doesn't have to be translated that way. It would mean not that Jesus was sinning and then stopped sinning, but that he brought sin to an end. He's through with sin. He's done with sin. He has brought sin to to an end through His suffering and death. In other words, Jesus suffered unto death, bringing an end to sin and rising in triumph to bring new life to His people. So maybe you can appreciate how this interpretation could flow out of the immediate verses that precede it. So 1 Peter 3.18, for example, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, put to death in the flesh. I think synonymous with the idea that he suffered in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now look at the end of verse 21 after talking about baptism being an appeal to God for a good conscience. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, in other words, that he died for us, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. For whoever or the one who, namely Christ, who has suffered in the flesh has brought an end to sin. Has brought a ceasing of sin for the believer. Christ has suffered in the flesh, meaning Christ has died and he has brought an end to sin. Rising in victory and triumph over sin. Bringing resurrection power to his people who then live lives in freedom from sin. And thus, the way of thinking we're to have is that our Lord through His suffering, through His death, has brought an end to sin, and therefore we can't live any longer for sin or in sin. Okay, you don't have to agree with me on that. That's my preferred interpretation. All three, I think, are legitimate, and all three are true enough. Regardless of which interpretation you prefer, what can be said definitively? Three things. Number one, Jesus' suffering for sins and His death in the flesh secured a new situation for the believer. As Christians, our relationship to sin now in the present is entirely changed and bound up with His suffering, with His death, and with His resurrection. Our freedom from sin as the children of God and our hatred of sin as those who have been transformed and born again by God's Spirit, our warfare with sin, these things are brought about not by a casual change of mind or change of attitude. They are brought about by what Jesus has done in His death and resurrection. The believer's new relationship with sin is brought about through the events of the gospel and through the new birth. Number two, what we can say with certainty, regardless of how we interpret verse 1, it seems in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, that Peter is concerned with a certain outcome. He's concerned that we arrive at a certain purpose and place, that we adopt a certain attitude and a way of thinking, particularly with reference to sin, not primarily with respect to suffering. So I don't think that's the main theme in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. He wants to talk to us. He wants us to arrive and to adopt a certain attitude and posture toward sin. All of the above interpretations I mentioned eventually terminate at the same point. We're to put off sinful human passions and we're to live for the will of God. This is Peter's burden. This is what he is driving at and that's where we're meant to arrive the burden of the passage so whether it's following christ's example as in the first interpretation or living out our union with christ as in the second interpretation or experiencing the resurrection power that jesus brings as in the third all of these things lead us to fight sin in the present and to live for the will of god that's the outcome peter is after regardless of how you understand verse one this is where we're headed. This is what He wants to achieve in us. This is where He's going. A third thing that can be said with certainty, to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, to be united to the Lord Jesus means that we have in truth, in fact, entered into a new relationship with sin. Regardless of how you arrive at that truth, that is the truth for believers. Through the new birth, through what our Savior has done and His suffering and death on the cross to sin and His resurrection and power over sin, Christians here, you have been brought into a new relationship with sin. So let's read verse 1 again. Let's talk about this now, the Christian's attitude toward sin. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, I'm arguing that's Jesus, has ceased from sin, brought an end to sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter says, arm yourselves, Christians, with this same way of thinking. This is the attitude towards sin that the Christian should have, that we should cease from sin, that sin is brought to an end for us through what our Lord has done, and we now want to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, what would this mean in the experience of these Christians to whom Peter is writing? These Christians scattered all throughout uh, Asia Minor. Peter is saying there was a period of time. There was an epoch in their lives in which they lived for human passions, lived for sin, delighted in sin. Now there is in Christ and in the new birth a decisive break. Now a new epoch in your life has begun with reference to sin. This new chapter, this new epic in your life, which Peter describes simply as the rest of the time, is to be lived in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. He's essentially saying that from here on out, Christians, let us consider ourselves done with sin. The phrase human passions literally means the desires, lusts, and cravings of men. And it is set in contrast to the will of God. You might think of it as what man in his natural fallen state wants and what God wants. These things are in contrast to one another. The will of man, the wants, the desires, the cravings, the lusts of man, and the will of God set in antithesis, in contrast to one another. In other words, Christian, the call to you is to cease from sinning. Whatever was true in the past is past. But now you've got time in front of you until you die or until Jesus returns. And what's to be your attitude toward sin now that you're a Christian? I'm not talking about the past before you trusted Christ. I'm talking about now, now that you have trusted Christ. And this is the Christian's attitude according to this text. I am not going to live anymore in the passions of the flesh. I want to live. I'm going to live in service to the will of God of God. That's the Christian's attitude, the Christian's posture towards sin. Whatever marked my life before, be it drunkenness, lust, sexual appetites, vanity, covetousness, bitterness, greed, whatever it is, those days of living for those things are done. I live for God, and my delight, my joy, is to do His will. The Christian's attitude towards sin is that he or she is done with it, Dead to it, lives no longer for it. And his aim now is to search out the will of God and do it for God's glory and for the Christian's everlasting happiness. Now, I've endeavored to be fairly precise in the language that I've used up to this point. I'm describing the Christian's attitude towards sin, the Christian's disposition and posture, his mental and spiritual and moral frame of reference toward sin. So, this is not to say that Christians literally never sin again. The Apostle John says, if we say we're without sin, we make God to be a liar. He says that in 1 John chapter 1. We know sin is still with us, but still, what's to be my attitude towards sin as a Christian? Well, I hate sin. I want to be done with sin. I want to be dead to sin. I don't want sin to have dominion over me. And God helping me, I'm going to fight my sin. I'm going to break from this by God's grace. Yes, I may stumble and fall at times, but I'm endeavoring to turn away from sin. My posture, my disposition, my attitude toward these human passions and desires of the flesh in my life is that I'm at war with them. And God being my helper, I want to be done with them. That's the Christian's attitude toward sin. Notice that phrase in verse 2, at the very beginning of verse 2 so as to live for the rest of the time. See, the focus for Peter is on what lies ahead, on the time we have left, not what's past. He's not focusing on whatever was true of you before. He's focused now on the rest of the time. But you say, I'm so ashamed of the past and the things that I've done. I'm so ashamed of what lies behind. Surely something must be done there. Peter says it's okay don't worry about that. I'm interested in now. I'm talking about the rest of the time. Don't look backwards, look forwards. You can't undo the past. You must trust that Jesus paid the debt for all your sins, that the blood of Jesus atones for what lies behind. But you're a Christian now. You follow Christ, and with the rest of the time, let's live for the will of God. Now, why do I draw attention to this? Because I know that some of us have some very great regrets. Some of us can identify things in our background that make us ashamed. Some of us look back on a life of sin and we're just filled with thoughts of embarrassment and shame. Some of us wish so badly we could go back and do things over. Well, here's the word from Peter don't look backwards, look forwards. He's interested in how we live the rest of the time, whether that's one more year or whether that's 50 more years. So brother, sister, the front nine wasn't so good. Well, now in Christ, have the best back nine you can have. Through the help and grace that Jesus supplies, now that you are a Christian, don't look backwards at what lies behind. Don't dwell on those regrets and the things that would make you ashamed. Trust the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus has paid it all. Amen. Hallelujah. And focus now as a child of God and as a follower of Jesus Christ through the grace and power and help that he is pleased to supply to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Friends, as we live out whatever remaining days we have in the flesh, let's resolve and let's help each other in this resolve. God being our helper, we're going to live for God's will. Let us live in accordance with his will, with his law, with his promises, with his gospel. Let us purpose to live by his grace in a way that is pleasing to him. Let us make his smile and his approval all our delight. And before leaving this point, let me remind you of the obvious. If you're a Christian, you know this. That this new relationship to sin, this new attitude towards sin is created and sustained only by the grace of God and the power of God in the gospel. So this isn't something we do by virtue of some legalism or or, or way to assert our own merit or something like that. Like I said, I think that's part of the meaning in verse 1. Christ died. Christ has brought an end to sin for the believer and he rose in triumph over sin and he is pleased to impart new birth and resurrection power to his people whereby they overcome their sins. In other words, you can never do it without Jesus. It's only through him we can put off the passions of the flesh and live for the will of God. Jesus died and rose from the dead to secure this new situation for us. He caused us to be born again to a living hope so that we could be transformed from lovers of sin into haters of sin. And rebels against the will of God and to those who delight in the will of God. That's the Christian's attitude towards sin. We are endeavoring, God being our helper, to live no longer in the flesh for human passions, but for the will of God. Consider with me secondly now, the world's attitude towards sin. The Christian's attitude towards sin, consider with me secondly, the world's attitude towards sin. Remember... Peter is jealous to equip these saints for how to live as exiles in a world that is not their home. And one of the things he does again and again, as we already have seen, is he tries to give them proper expectations for what their lives will be like in a world that is not their home, to bring them a sense of realism about the world. He wants them to know exactly what they can expect as Christ's followers and as he calls them, elect exiles. As Christian sojourners making their way to heaven. So look with me now at verse 3. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That's sort of a peculiar phrase. What does that mean? I think he's really just using a figure of speech. He's saying, Enough is enough. Uh, it's been long overdue that we would be done with sin and follow the will of God. I think that's his point there. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do you could just insert the word world there where Gentiles is used. In fact, these Christians were predominantly Gentiles themselves, I believe, from these various places all throughout Asia Minor. So when he says what the Gentiles do, I think he just means what the surrounding nations wish to do, the peoples of the world, what the world wants to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So verse 2 ended by saying, we're not to live for human passions, but for the will of God, putting these things in antithesis to one another. There's the human passions, there's the will of God. So God's will is set in contrast to human passions. Now in verse 3, Peter essentially equates these human passions with that which the Gentiles want to do. You see that in verse 3? The time pass suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do with, with their will, with their wishes, with their desires. Those human passions were to forsake as followers of Christ. Those passions represent the very things the Gentiles want to do. In other words, there's the will of God, which we're to pursue. And then there's the will of the world which we are to put off. This is their will. This is their desire. This is what they want. This is what they love. Moreover, it was what we wanted and what we loved before being born again through the Spirit of God. This is the will of the world set in contrast and opposition to the will of God. And it's at this point I want to remind you of a very basic principle that we seldom talk about today but really need to recover. Galatians 1-4 tells us that Jesus gave Himself, according to the will of God, to save us, it says, from the present evil age. The world is not neutral. Peter describes this world and the thoughts and passions and lusts and desires that animate it as the present evil age. He doesn't save His children just from the depths of hell. He saves us from this present age marked by wickedness and sinful desires and sinful passions. Paul says in Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, a text we should all learn and know and apply. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see the contrast between the way of the world what the world wants to do and what the will of God is. The will of the world is in sharp opposition to the will of God. Now, why make this point and draw this out? Christians used to talk about worldliness. And they used to talk about forsaking worldliness. And I just don't hear many people talking about that anymore. I don't know if it's associated with some kind of perceived legalism or something that's present in churches, but make no mistake, Christian, God calls us to forsake worldliness. The mind of the flesh, the will of the world, is hostile to God. You cannot have the world and have the things of God. These things are are in opposition to one another. And if the choice is Jesus or the world, you say like the old song, take the world but give me Jesus. That's the Christian's attitude to the wickedness we see in the world. But this is the way of the world. Sin is what the world wants. The Bible makes us clear again and again. In John 3, we read very simply that men, mankind loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes mankind outside of Christ as living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Peter here in our passage says a similar thing, but doesn't leave anything open to the imagination. He describes the types of behaviors he has in mind. He says, the Gentiles desire to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. These were the prevalent expressions of human passions in Peter's day, and you'll notice uh, not much has changed. These same things mark our generation and our world today even in 21st century American culture. Sensuality, a general fixation on indulging physical or bodily appetites, a very broad term. Passions or literally lusts or sinful longings, it doesn't have to be limited to sexual lust, but I think that's the primary meaning here. Drunkenness, that is drinking to excess to the point of impairing your faculties. Orgies or more uh, accurately revelries like late night parties in which immorality is indulged. Drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Peter essentially says the desire for these things animates the world. The world's attitude towards sin is that sin should be indulged. It should be delighted in. It is, as Peter says, what the Gentiles want. This defines and animates their desires and their longings. But this desire for sin, this attitude of the world toward sin, we're under that second point, it goes a step further according to Peter. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, I think that's the sins that they wish to indulge in. With respect to this, they are surprised when you Christians do not join in with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, their love for sin is so great that they are surprised when they encounter people who don't join them in their sin, in what Peter calls their flood of debauchery. That Christians would not go with them to the house of sin was seen to be surprising. Like, who couldn't want this? Who who couldn't want to indulge this or that vice, this or that sin? The good conduct of Christians, their upright and moral conduct, was surprising to the world. And I must ask, friends, is it so today? Do we still surprise people by our righteous conduct. Is there any contrast at all between the world and self-professed followers of Jesus who say they're following the will of God, which is, as we've seen, antithetical to the will of the world? Well, now, of course, would be a fitting time for me to cite statistics about divorce rates in evangelical churches or participation in pornography or the proportion of professed Christians cohabitating in unwed relationships, but I'll highlight other things. Are people surprised by our pure speech? Are people surprised that we don't enter into gossip in the way that they do? Are people surprised that we don't respond to offenses with bitterness and rage? Are people surprised by our patience? our long-suffering and our composure in the face of trials and unjust treatment? Are people surprised by the way we build up our spouses when we speak about them privately? Are people surprised by the way we use our money? Are they surprised by the way we spend our weekends and our vacations? Are they surprised at how often our homes are open to the needy? Are they surprised by our kindness our gentleness, and our compassion. In other words, is there anything surprising about us, friends? I've not seen that before. Now, why is she that way? What is He doing there? That's surprising. I've not come to expect that from people. Does our righteous and godly conduct surprise the world? But of course, to be clear, if we're reading this text in context, the world's surprise at Christian conduct, at least here in verse 4, doesn't lead necessarily to a happy outcome. Because Peter says the world's response is not just surprise. Peter goes on to say, they're surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The result of the Christian community's abstinence from sin is that the Christians apparently were being maligned by the world. If you don't share in our delight in these things, well, something must be wrong with you. Like, you're just a square. You're antisocial. You're a bigot. If you don't approve of the things that we do, you're the problem. Something is wrong with you. They malign you. This is the world's attitude towards sin. Peter is saying it's not just that the world wants these things, it's that they want you to want these things. They want your approval and your participation to the point that they malign you because you don't join in with them. I was a Christian in uh, high school, and I went to a community college for some classes, and I can remember being offered drugs by people in the class. And that was always surprising to me because I thought, why would you want to share your drugs? Like, who does that? Like, why? They're your drugs. Why would you not keep them for yourself? Why are you sharing them with me? And of course, as the Christian, I did what Nancy Reagan told me to do. I just said no, okay? More importantly, I did what Jesus would have me do. But but in that silly illustration, you can see something of an impulse in people. It's not enough to enjoy sin ourselves. I want you to enjoy it. I want the approval of the Christian community. If I could get him to indulge in this, well, then the taste will be all the more sweet to me. We tend to share the things that we enjoy. Most people are introduced to pornography through a friend, hey, come check this out. Indulge in this with me. People who enjoy materialism and spending money to excess and engaging in all sorts of worldly views about things and stuff they love, let's get the girlfriends or the guys together and all go together to the mall. This is how the world works, and they're thinking about sin. It's not enough to want sin ourselves. They want you, my brother, my sister, my Christian friend, to want sin as well. They want the approval of the Christian world. Such is the world's attitude towards sin. They want it, and they want you to want it, and they will malign you if you don't want it. And their maligning of you, in some instances, can have grave consequences. You could lose friends. You could lose out on opportunities for advancement in school or in work and in places all over the world. It is precisely because Christians refuse to sin, refuse to bow the knee to false gods or to participate in pagan rituals or to participate in fealty to the government or whatever it is, it is precisely because of Christians not following sinners in the flood of debauchery that our brothers and sisters are persecuted around the world. Well, you have the Christian's attitude towards sin, you have the world's attitude towards sin, but we're given also God's attitude towards sin. So, consider with me thirdly God's attitude towards sin, and I'll be briefer here. Verse 5, but they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Friends, God looks on all of this. People will malign Christians and speak evil against them, but God has a different perspective. What is His attitude towards sin? It is that sin will be judged. He is coming to judge both the living and the dead, and all will give an account to Him. And Peter is saying to these Christians, maligned by the world for their righteous conduct, he says, my friend, God sees and God knows. And He will judge evil. No one will escape His judgment. Indeed, all will give an account. And Peter wants to remind them of this. Brothers and sisters, things look very different now from the way they will look then. It appears now as though the wicked prosper. It may look now as though you are despised and maligned and belittled and lampooned and that they have all the happiness, all the success, and all the pleasure as they rout their lives up in sin and they malign and persecute you. But Peter is reminding them, you elect exiles in this world that's not your home. He is reminding them of God's perspective. Remember, Christians, they will give account to Him who is ready Hatoimos, God is prepared. God is ready to judge the living and the dead. God will not smile on sin. No sin will go unpunished. It will be punished either at the cross of Jesus Christ or in hell forever. He will judge sin, and more than that, He will reward righteousness. The passage calls to my mind at least the experience of Asaph in Psalm 73. After documenting how the wicked prosper, even questioning whether following God was a vain thing, he comes to this conclusion in verse 16 of Psalm 73, but when I thought how to understand this, the prosperity of the wicked and the persecution that comes to the righteous at wicked hands, when I thought I'd understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He says in verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Friends, the circumstances and sufferings we find ourselves in today will look very different from the perspective of the judgment to come. And part of living well as exiles, as we are called to in this epistle of 1 Peter, means learning to see things from God's perspective and seeing things from the perspective of sojourners who are not yet home, but who await the inheritance, the life to come. Christians who suffer now, who die to sin now, who live for righteousness now, who pursue a near walk with God in Christ, who live according to the Spirit, they will be rewarded on the last day. But for all those who live in sin, who pursue human passions and live in sensuality and lust and drunkenness and idolatry, they will be judged." not a popular view of preaching, but I think it's one of the things preachers are called to do and that they've been doing for thousands of years, and that is to announce to sinners the coming judgment of God and to call them to flee the wrath to come into the arms of the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, I ask you, will you heed this text? The Lord is ready to judge both the living and the dead. Will you bow the knee to the Lord Jesus? Will you turn from your sin and repentance and faith and embrace the provision for your sins that God has offered in his own dear son? I tell you solemnly, with all gravity, judgment is coming. It may not look that way right now, and we may ingloriously sedate ourselves with all kinds of distractions and pleasures that the world has to offer. But my friend, the wrath of God is coming, and God has made a way for any sinner who would come to Him through the Lord Jesus to be saved. If you would turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will live forever in paradise with the Lamb. Before providing a few lines of application and closing, very briefly, what do we do with verse 6? Peter is just, he doesn't let up. Uh, There's some difficult passages here. Very briefly. Peter concludes this section by saying, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead, who are dead, excuse me, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I don't think the passage is saying the gospel was preached to people who are physically dead. I don't think that's the idea. Nor do I think the primary meaning is to say that the gospel was preached to people who are spiritually dead. All I think Peter is saying is the gospel was preached to people and they are now dead, There were people, there was a generation of Christians, the gospel was preached to them. People who lived in the world, who gave themselves to human passions. The gospel was preached to them, they are now dead, and they lived according to the principles of this passage, and they are judged in the flesh the way people make judgments about people. Oh, what a silly little life. Lived for the pie in the sky. The world maligned them. The world put them down, judged them the way people in the flesh do. But there is this final vindication that the text promises. They live in the Spirit the way God does. In other words, God has made a different judgment on them. There are people who died who were seen to be silly and small-minded and pious and legalists. They were judged the way people judge people. But make no mistake, they live in the Spirit as God does. That's my understanding of verse 6. A few lines of application and then we'll be done. Three in particular. Number one. This passage teaches us that how we live out our days in the flesh matters to God. All of us are living out our days in the flesh. The way we live out our days in the flesh matters to God. The call to every Christian here is to live no longer in the flesh for human passions, but for God's will. Like God cares how I live today. It's not like you've been born again, you've gotten the fire insurance, go on your merry way. God cares about the Christian life. God cares about how you live this week. And this fills my days and my weeks with purpose and meaning. God takes an interest in how I live my life. And I'm to put off human passions. And I'm to live for the will of God. I'm to search out His pleasure like that's what I'm living for. God cares, brother, sister, how you live in this coming week. And part of his will for his people is that they forsake worldliness and that we put off all that is carnal. My brother, my sister, just commit, just commit in service to Christ that there are certain places I'm not going to go. There are certain forms of entertainment I'm not going to consume. There are certain clothes I won't wear, certain words I won't say, certain jokes I won't make. There are certain ways I won't spend my money, certain things I'm not going to consume. And let them call you a legalist, let them call you a prude, let them call you whatever they want to call you, but I still believe there are certain things that ought not to be named among God's people. And I'm not going to give you some kind of list the shows you can't watch, the things you can't wear, whatever, not about that. But the Bible warns God's people against living in worldliness, living for what is carnal, for what is sinful. There are certain behaviors, certain recreations, and certain things Christians should avoid. And let me just say, it: preaching the law and Christian duty and the demands of Christian discipleship has fallen on very hard times in our day. And yet, that's what most of the New Testament is about. And so I'm not here saying these are things you now do as a means of earning favor with God and securing salvation for your own soul. What I'm saying is this is what a transformed life empowered by God's Spirit looks like. This is the fruit that is born from the root of the gospel saving us from our sins. We live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And when we fail, praise God, there's forgiveness for us. There's an advocate with the Father. We can confess our sins to Him and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But let our resolve be, our attitude toward sin be, I'm not going to live for human passions, but for the will of God. Number two, this passage should give us a renewed sense of just how opposed the world is to the Christian faith. The New Testament writers make it clear again and again that the world is altogether opposed to what we believe. When the Bible speaks of the world, it's speaking of more than the globe, like a terrestrial orb. The Bible is speaking about a whole cadre of passions and ways of thinking and desires and ambitions and impulses that animate the world in which we live. And so friends, we shouldn't expect the world is going to applaud us. We shouldn't expect the world is going to embrace our way of thinking. We shouldn't expect that our beliefs and convictions are going to be appreciated in the halls of academia and in the public square and in the political arena. Friends, the world is altogether animated against the things of God and against the people of God. Again, I'm not trying to sound like some kind of legalist or some kind of alarmist, but the world is not your friend. As badly as we want to see men and women saved from out of the world, the world is not your friend. Like this should be in the Christianity 101 class for new converts. The world is not a neutral place. The world is animated against the things of God, a third and final point of application from this passage. I'm sorry I don't have more encouraging applications, we're sticking with this passage. Come back next week, hopefully it will be much more encouraging. I shouldn't say that, this should encourage us, it's a pleasure to live for the will of God. Number three, we should expect that a commitment to live righteously will invite the world's hostility. We should expect that a commitment to live righteously will invite the world's hostility. I wanna speak particularly to the young people here. So uh, you'll have youth group tonight at 5.30. I am so looking forward to being there with you. We'll be talking about some of the stuff we've been talking about in our equipped class and maybe we could talk about this too. But I wanna address the young people in particular, but this would apply, I think, to everyone here. So uh, I am a millennial. I'll just admit that up front, okay? I'm a millennial. Uh, The millennial generation is not especially known for its virtues. Um, There's not a lot millennials have to be proud of in terms of what is uh, distinguishing about them. If you think of the greatest generation of the baby boomers or generation X or whatever, the millennials are not known for their virtues. That said, uh, there are a couple of things, at least one thing I think the millennials do better than just about any other generation. I think millennials and studies bear this out, uh, millennials find empathy easier and more natural to adopt, a posture of empathy toward others. Millennials tend to be very sensitive about issues of oppression and injustice, they are very eager to affirm others, they're very desirous that people feel safe and loved and comfortable. And they are grieved, more so perhaps than other generations, about examples of injustice or oppression. They're very sensitive to the feelings of others, and they endeavor, I think, to be sympathetic toward other people. And you who are millennials or those who are behind the millennials, I don't know what your generation is called, but um, empathy can be a great virtue. Okay, here's what I've observed among Christian young people they don't want to offend people, they don't like to offend people, they don't relish conflict, they genuinely want to affirm other people, and they want other people to feel safe and feel loved, okay? So, there's much to be commended in that impulse. But here's the challenge for you young people, if that marks you. Your Christian convictions will inevitably put you in conflict with certain people in the world. I'm not saying it's possible, I'm saying it is inevitable. And here's my greatest anxiety for you, that you will compromise the truth and forsake the faith in pursuit of the world's affirmation, that in your zeal to avoid offenses and to affirm others, you will back away little by little from the Christian faith and the claims of Christ. My young Christian friend. When faithfulness invites people to malign you and speak evil of you, you choose faithfulness. Even if it means losing friends, even if it means being viewed as closed-minded and as a bigot and as judgmental, your Christian faith will increasingly put you in the world's crosshairs and your convictions will cause offense. Now, I am not commending the attitude of some Christians who seem to relish offense, like, like I don't, I don't give a damn what the world thinks about me. I'm just going to say it, and I don't mind giving offense and all of that. That is not a godly attitude. We don't relish conflict. Our attitude is like that of the Lord Jesus. He didn't relish hostility. He, he wept over Jerusalem and those who opposed Him, and He said, How often I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not, and He wept. That's to be our attitude toward the world's hostility. We don't relish the hatred of the world. But what I am saying to you is that when your gay friend says to you, so you're saying to me, if I don't forsake my homosexual lifestyle and turn to Jesus, I'm going to hell. You tell them With all Judgment Day seriousness, and with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, yes. But I have more to say than that. That if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sin, you'll be saved. And He'll help you, He'll transform you, He'll make you new. And and let me say one thing further that whether you repent and turn from sin or not, whether you believe like I do, I will never stop loving you. Now listen, some will malign you and you'll lose some friends and some will be saved. But regardless of how the world responds to you, you'll have the smile of God And His approval. That's all that we live for, to do the will of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the situation that the Apostle Peter describes here under the inspiration of your Spirit. It's a difficult situation for us. We don't like living in a world that's not our home. We're tired of sojourning in a foreign land. We so long to be home with you. But we are undaunted and we are not afraid because we know that you will give us all that we need in order to live faithfully in the present age. Please teach us how to do this. Please help us in how to do this. Give us all the attitudes, postures, perspectives, resolutions we should have towards sin. Help us to be thoughtful about the worldliness that surrounds us. Help us to be ever mindful of the coming judgment of God. And that there is everlasting life and reward to be had for those who come to Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful in our generation. Help us not to grow weary in doing good. Help us to live out your will in our generation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.